in an Advent series looking at uh, the basic Christmas story, the four passages in the Bible from Luke 1 and 2 and Matthew 1 and 2 that are so familiar to all of us. And uh, last week we looked at Luke chapter 1 and Gabriel's announcement to Mary about the Savior of the world being born um, through her. And today we're looking at Matthew chapter 1 and a prophecy that was given to Joseph. So you can turn in your Bibles uh, so you're ready in Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 and following, and that's where we'll be studying this morning. But in this passage of Matthew's gospel, he shows us that Jesus was physically born of Mary and that he was miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit, but yet his true origin is from heaven and that he is the eternal Son of God who has become man. So a prophecy is given to Joseph in our passage and now to us too to reconsider. So let's pray for the Lord's blessing. Father, we thank you for our plenteous redemption, as Psalm 130 talks about, that you have given to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your holy word that we have, that you've given to your church, and we pray this morning that you would bless it to our souls, to our minds, and we ask that you would instruct us even further and deeper about the salvation that you have given to us in Jesus. And we pray it for his glory. Amen. So I'm going to read to you Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So Matthew wants us to see this glorious mystery afresh of the incarnation of the Son of God. The big idea in our passage this morning is pretty simple, that Jesus is God Himself, who has taken on humanity in order to become our Savior. And the outline of our passage is pretty simple. There are two doctrinal affirmations that are really being presented by Matthew um, in verses 21 and 23. But in verses 18 to 21, we see the mission of Jesus, and in verses 22 to 25, we see the identity of Jesus. And so let's take a look first at his mission. I mean, what is his mission? It's right there for you in verse 21. It tells you the mission. He came to save his people from their sins. That's his mission. Well, the circumstances of this unusual birth are, again, laid out for us here now by Matthew, and it's an unusual birth. It would be the birth of the divine Son of God. 
Mary was betrothed to Joseph, and both of whom were probably in their mid-teens. Betrothal is a period of time, it lasts about, lasted about a year in this, in this culture, in which the, the, culture, the couple were actually preparing for marriage, for full marriage during this year. They were considered legally married at this point, but they lived with their respective parents until the public marriage ceremony, and then after that, they're considered fully married, and they would consummate the marriage, and eventually, of course, have children. Right? You see that even in our text this morning, at the very beginning and the very end in verse 19, and in verse 24, this emphasis upon Joseph not knowing her until after the birth of Jesus. Well, Mary was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. You see that emphasis here by Matthew that she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Um, I point this out to you because, again, we're jumping in the middle of a book of the Bible, and we're not going to spend, you know, a year looking at Matthew at this point. And, but this is a very important theme in the gospel according to Matthew. If you were to go through and read this book, um, you would find a very strong emphasis on the role of the Holy Spirit. And he lays that out right at the beginning and introduces it that the Holy Spirit is active at the very beginning of his gospel. And it's a sign that the messianic age, the age of the Messiah, has come. And according to Matthew, this miraculous event of the birth of Jesus marks the beginning of this new age, when the Messiah was coming on the scene and the Holy Spirit of God would be active in a new and powerful way. Well, soon enough, of course, Joseph's going to observe that Mary's pregnant. And uh, so in accordance with the law, he sought to divorce her um, before the actual full marriage was completed. And at this time, well, of course, at this time, the law would have been for adultery would have been public stoning, but the Jews didn't really practice it at the time at this period in Israel. But they would just send the woman away if this, if this were the case. And so we see that Joseph is identified here as a just man or a righteous man. So he's going to keep the law. He's a law-abiding man. He's going to keep God's law. But he was also a very merciful man, you see, and that he didn't want to disgrace Mary in the situation. Now, according to the narrative that we have here, it seems that Joseph was really unaware of the holiness of this conception, the unusualness that it would actually be the divine Messiah that she was carrying. And so he would proceed with this divorce, it seems, unless an angel came to him. And so rightfully so, in verses 20 to 21, we see then the word of the angel of the Lord comes to Joseph. And, and then we read, at, starting in verse 20, but he cons- as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins." So again, as Joseph's considering all these things, how this is going to proceed that he would end up divorcing Mary, an angel appears to him in a dream. And again, another hint at the way Matthew constructs his gospel here for you, notice the emphasis again on Joseph's lineage from David. Joseph, David's son. This is very important. Again, we're not reading the whole book of Matthew, but One of the most interesting pieces in the book of Matthew is how he opens. He opens with a very extensive genealogy. Now, I know a lot of us skip over those when we read the Bible. But it's very important as Matthew lays out his gospel. He starts in the whole beginning of chapter 1, verses 1 through 16, 
laying out the Davidic line of Jesus. And so then it's now emphasized yet again as he narrates the story for us. Of course, it's, it's never in doubt, a doubt that it's going to happen this way, but the fact that Jesus would be the legal heir of David is extremely important to be able to take David's throne. And the point that Matthew is showing us is that all of the details of the movement of history to bring about to this point when the Savior of the world will be born, that, he, that the Lord God has been, over, has been over all of the details, planning them, executing them precisely for the right time. That's true throughout his whole introduction. In fact, Matthew has a very long introduction. It goes on for a couple chapters. And during that whole time, he's just showing you evidence after evidence after evidence of how God has been directing the affairs of the history of his redemption. And that's really the point of the meditation even now as he tells a story about the birth of Jesus. I mean, that's part of our Christmas meditation and can be as well, is the wisdom and the planning of God in all of these details. That it shows the beauty of God and his wisdom and his commitment to redemption. Well, anyway, Joseph, of course, is informed by the angel about the work of the Spirit in the virginal conception, and he's told what to name the child, name him Jesus, because it means Yahweh is salvation. The he in the passage here in the original language is emphatic, meaning that it's he who will save his people from their sins, pointing to who this Jesus Christ is. He would bring salvation to his people and fulfill what we read this morning from Psalm 130. Notice also, don't miss this, that he would be saving them from their sins. You know, it's not the Messiah didn't come to bring national political deliverance. And of course, at the time of Matthew's writing, that would have sort of been obvious because it didn't happen. But he came to save his people from their sins. That's the focus of Jesus' mission. That's why he became incarnate. There may be a lot of other associated reasons and things that he teaches us and it models for us as well, but his purpose for coming is summed up in just that one phrase, to save his people from their sins. Later on in the book of Matthew, Jesus makes this clear two other times, very, very clear. Matthew 20, 28 says, he says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then further on in Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, he says, for this is the blood of the covenant, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, of course, as we read this, this is the theme, he came to save his people from their sins. You have to ask the question, well, who are the people of God then, according to Matthew? Again, this is a, another major thematic introduction to the book of Matthew, because if I were to title the book of Matthew, I would entitle it something like The Kingdom and Its People. And Matthew will unfold who actually are the people of God, who are these people he's going to save that he came to die for. Well, if you read the book of Matthew, you'll find out who they are. Those are the people, whether they're Jew or Gentile, who confess Jesus as Lord. 
They are the ones that God has chosen for salvation that He came to die for and to save them. And in fact, practically, it would be the people who would eventually put their faith in Jesus Christ. So verse 21 is actually worth memorizing if you don't already have it memorized. It's so short. But it's a summary statement of the whole reason for Jesus' incarnation. It speaks about His mission to rescue His chosen people from their sins. He came to save the elect. So how would Jesus accomplish this salvation for His people? We know the end of the story, if you continue reading through Matthew, it's through His cross. Now, He accomplished a lot of things, of course. In His life, He performed for us an an active obedience to give us an an alien righteousness. It's a lot of theology in there. But theologians talk about the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ, both part of the work of redemption. And so during his life, in other words, he performed true righteousness that none of us can perform. No matter how hard you try, you cannot perform one act of true righteousness. None of us can. And so To be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, it's His very own. His righteousness that He actually earned for us. And then in His death, He performs His passive obedience to provide the substitutionary sacrifice for sin. The penal substitution. The legal substitution. To die in our place for our sins. To take upon Himself the full wrath of God in our place so that He could free us from all those sins. He would die for the sins of the people to bring us forgiveness because our sins are paid for. And then to give us His righteousness on top of that so that we could stand righteous before God. This great exchange is mentioned by the Apostle Paul very clearly in 2 Corinthians 5.21 where it says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus came to save His people from their sins. He undertook this work for a multitude of sinners all throughout the world, sinners just like you and me. And whoever wants forgiveness of sins and an eternal, secure redemption and hope of heaven, you should put your faith in Jesus Christ. And during Advent season, especially we who worship Jesus, we should worship Him also because He saves us from our sins. It should make us feel great gratitude and worship toward Him, to be broken again at the magnitude of our sin, but then just astonished at the magnitude of our freedom and our acceptance in in Christ before God. His mission would yet in Matthew's gospel have to be seen in light of his identity. So it's told us very directly here who he is in his coming, but the fullness of it now is revealed as the story continues because this Savior is actually God with us. That's who Jesus is, as we read in verses 22 to 25. So 22 begins, all this took place to fulfill. What's the all this? The all this is everything that's come before so far in his gospel. The whole plan of history, chapter, which we didn't look at, chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 16. All of that 
the conception that took place in Mary by the Holy Spirit, that too. The birth that's been announced, the naming, all these things, they all took place under divine direction in fulfillment of the prophetic word that came from Isaiah 7.14, which he then quotes for us and says, that the Lord, all that the Lord has spoken by the prophet, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, there are two highly significant issues that need to be covered carefully here, I think, for our greater faith and our greater joy. And we'll understand the quotation from Isaiah, I think, a lot better, at least I hope and pray we all do. But the first is a very short and simple kind of an issue. Um, that's the translation of the Hebrew word Alma in Isaiah 7.14. So you've, you've probably are familiar with the famous translation debate uh, in Isaiah 7.14. It's surprising that it's still so famous. I mean, it's really not much of a debate. So do you translate Alma as young woman or do you translate Alma as virgin? The debate is really more about theological agendas than it is about an actual translation of a word. But it's not unimportant. It actually gives us some interesting insight into the prophets and the message of God and what Matthew makes of the whole thing. So the word Alma in Hebrew simply refers to a young girl or a young woman, and its emphasis is on the fact that she's reached the age of sexual maturity. That's what the word means. It's a general term. But yet the Septuagint, which was the <clears throat> Greek translation of the Old Testament, completed you know, somewhere in the 2nd, 3rd century B.C., in there we see Matthew is quoting that text here, and he uses the Greek term parthenos, which is a more precise term, and it means virgin. So it implies that there was an expectation of some great unusualness about the woman, to understate it, at least by the 2nd century B.C., so is virgin a legitimate translation of the Old Testament here? Yes, it is. And linguistic arguments against that translation are not very convincing. So, you know, yes, we might have expected uh, Bethula to be the word, which is the actual word for virgin. But Alma is used perhaps because it communicates that this woman is of marriable age and so simply assumed, of course, to be a virgin. So as you can see, it's really not much of a debate, sort of a boring debate. So let's move on from that one to the next point, which is much more interesting. And that is to try to figure out and understand how Matthew thinks about the fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14. Now, if you're like me, sometimes you'll read the New Testament, and then one of the New Testament authors will quote something from the Old Testament, and your first thought is like, how in the world did they get that? Oh, maybe it's just me. So anyway, when I read it, sometimes, especially in Matthew's gospel, and if you think this is a little confusing, just read the next chapter, then you'll be really confused. Uh, because Matthew understands the Old Testament and quotes it in ways that we aren't usually the first things that come into our minds. But you know, as you read Matthew, the, your bewilderment sort of grows, but then you start to understand and realize what Matthew's doing, and it increases our faith. Because Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has a much keener grasp in the true meaning of the Old Testament understood. And the Holy Spirit always gives the correct interpretation. And so that's what we have in front of us. In fact, I would even argue that we should learn how to interpret the Old Testament from the New Testament. 
That's why we have the apostolic writings in the New Testament. They're there to teach us how to understand the Scriptures. So you might want to turn briefly uh, to Isaiah chapter 7, and we're going to look at this a minute. We don't have time, of course, to exposit that whole text, but just look at verses 11 through 17, uh, or 11 through 16, rather, is good enough. Um, so Isaiah 7, chapter 7, uh, verses 11 through 16. So I'll read it to you, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. So the Lord is speaking to King Ahaz, and he says to him, starting in verse 11, Ask a sign. Ask for a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So, King Ahaz, king of Judah, it's about 735 B.C. So he's given an amazing opportunity because he's afraid of this uh, alliance of the kings, Syria and Ephraim, and the devastation that they would wreak in attacking his, his land. And he's given this wonderful opportunity to ask God for a sign of deliverance. But he pretends that he's more spiritual than that. Uh, but he's given this opportunity to assure himself by God giving him a sign to be you know, free of these two nasty kings that he's afraid of, Rezin and Pekah. But he refuses to do so because he really doesn't trust the Lord. But he wants to rely on his own strength. You can go back and read the story yourself in the Old Testament. But he wants to rely on his own strength and all the political and military alliances that he has in place that he's been working. His trust is really there. That's how deliverance is going to come. So when God, through his prophet, offers him an opportunity to receive a sign from the Lord, he doesn't really need it. And he shows his fake spirituality in his response. And so, God decides, well, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And it's a sign of judgment now against you for your unbelief. And it was God's chosen sign of deliverance. The sign included a virginal conception, it included a son being born, and it included the name being given. It's a very unusual sign. A virgin conceiving and giving birth to a son who would be the presence of God? What does that mean? So the question here for us, though, mainly this morning, is how is Matthew interpreting this passage? And Matthew's certainly right in the way he goes about it. But let's see if we can understand, uh, according, to, according to what we have here, to understand it. Basically, Matthew is telling us about the full and final fulfillment of this prophecy in, chapter, in Isaiah 7. And it seems that as you go through and you read the Old Testament and the chapters 7, 8, and 9, which are actually a full unit, that there was an anticipatory fulfillment of the Messiah that took place actually in the time of Ahaz. But nevertheless, God was speaking more into the original situation than could be grasped at the time. And you know, that's how prophecy in the Old Testament works so often, is that a historical circumstance takes place, 
but God speaks into it things that not only address the immediate situation, but provide a hope that is way down the road in the history of redemption. Because, of course, he has an eternal perspective, and he has eternal purposes that he's working out. You see, because the true salvation from one's true enemies is going to be the Messiah. Whether those enemies are the people who are the enemies of God and of his church, or the enemies of Satan and the evil ones, ourselves, our flesh, all of it, Jesus would be the redemption. And so we look at how the, look at how the prophecy finishes up in chapter 7, verse 15. And so we get this verse 14, which is the one we're interested in, and then we get to, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So, I mean, we're in, we're in a very immediate historical context here. So, one way to read Isaiah here is that the birth of this child, in the original context to them, could have been Hezekiah's or maybe Isaiah's in chapter 8. But it would coincide within a few years that there would be this dissolution of, of Isaiah's, uh, or Ahaz's concern, rather, the king's concern, for the political and military threat in the region. Because when this child basically experiences the judgment on the land, like everyone else is experiencing on what they have to eat and what's happening around them, and can even barely be at the age of discerning right and wrong, that's when God would rescue him. And you know, it wouldn't be a very big rescue. It would be a short-lived rescue, part of judgment upon the people for their forsaking God. But God took advantage of this situation to speak so much more for us because we should observe the larger context. And again, yes, here's something else for meditation during Advent season, is read chapters 8 and 9. 7, 8, and 9 all go together. In fact, you can't correctly understand any of it unless you read the whole message and it becomes quite obvious in context, you get this announcement at the beginning in chapter 7, verse 14, that it definitely involves a messianic promise. I mean, it's told you right there in the beginning, his name shall be God with us. But then as you read through chapters 8 and 9, and you start observing, wow, this promise actually has a lot more to it. Because it seems like that new age of the time of the Messiah is somehow woven in here. So how do we understand all of that? And we have to recall that that's the nature of prophecy. It's the interweaving of the periods of the history of redemption. God took advantage of the situation, if you will, to speak about much more. And so when you read all of chapter 7 through 9, it becomes very obvious about what is being talked about. Because, you know, the child, this child who's mentioned here in 7, you know what? He appears again in chapter 8, verse 8, verse 10 chapter 9, verse 6, and 7, and it leads to the conclusion that, oh, this is no ordinary child. It's the child, the child of deliverance. And indeed, and amazingly, he would have to be born of a virgin, and he would be God himself. That's the conclusion to which these prophecies in Isaiah 7, 8, and 9 lead, and that's why Matthew concludes and says that at the very beginning, just quoting the verse 14 in chapter 7, but referencing the whole thing, this child is now here, and his name is going to be Jesus. He's the ultimate fulfillment. Even if you look at the end in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, you learn about this child. He's no ordinary child. 
It says, For to unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So it is obvious to anyone who reads it, okay, there is way more to this prophecy than just the deliverance from those two kings in that day. That God is speaking about the full redemption time that's coming. So you can read it on your own. But let's go back to Matthew now, back to verse 23. And it says, they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, the they is not referring to Mary and Joseph, because what do they call him? Jesus. That's his name. So the they is referring to the people of the Messiah. Jews and Gentiles, you and me, whoever would call him that. Those who would believe and proclaim that Jesus is God with us, that he is the God-man, that he is Emmanuel. Emmanuel is not a literal name. Although we now, of course, use it that way to name some of our children. But it's a descriptive name. It's another way of naming people. It's a descriptive name describing the task or the role that that person would have. Who would Jesus be? Who would this Isaiah 7:14 son be? He would be one who brings God's presence in the midst of his people. God became a man. That is the most glorious mystery of all time. That is the gospel of God, the good news. It's absolutely amazing that his saving presence would be among mankind. Jesus is our God, and he is our Savior forever. And so then we get to the birth of Jesus in verses 24 to 25, when Joseph woke from sleep. Remember, this is all told to him in a dream. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife, but didn't know her until she'd given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus like the angel said. So here we have the conclusion of the story. Joseph obeys the word of the angel, takes Mary as his wife, completes the marriage rather than divorcing her. He only refrained from marital relations until the birth of this Holy Spirit child. And certainly, Mary and Joseph had other natural children along the way. There's no idea in this text of perpetual virginity of Mary, as some might purport. In fact, the language suggests just the opposite. And anyway, Joseph named the boy Jesus, and again it means Yahweh is salvation, or Yahweh saves. So this is the focus of Matthew's account, who he is and what, what he would do, and the virgin birth is one of the definitive signs of the divine messiahship of Jesus. So the prophetic promise has been fulfilled. Matthew wants us to know. That son you've been waiting for, he's here. It's been fulfilled. God has directed all the steps of history to bring it about. And why do we, think about it for a moment, why do we need a Savior that is both fully divine, 100% God, and fully human, 100% man? Why do we need a Savior like that? Well, we need a Savior who is like us, 100% human being, because we need a suitable substitute, somebody like us. We need also someone who can obey for us because we can't. 
We're dead in our sins. And we need a mediator with God from our position, one who can stand in our place. We need a Savior who's 100% divine because only that kind of Savior could fully bear the penalty of the full wrath of God for sin. We need a 100% divine Savior because there's nothing in ourselves that we can save ourselves by, by our works, our sincerity, our supposed spirituality, our religious duties, whatever it might be. We need more than just a prophet or a priest. We need the Son of God. And we need to understand that salvation can only come from God. We need a real mediator who is acceptable to God the Father as God the Son. That's a short summary. But again, whoever wants forgiveness of sin, maybe that's you this morning, you want eternal salvation, you have to put your faith in Jesus the Christ because there is no other way to be saved. There's no other way to have sin forgiven. There's no other way to gain a righteousness before God. Jesus has done it all, and it's just there for you to put your faith in him. And during Advent season, we worship Jesus because he is Emmanuel. We call him Emmanuel. We call him God with us. We proclaim who he is as the divine son become man. And his presence is among us, and it strengthens us today, even as we gather together to worship as his church. And Jesus said at the conclusion to the end of Matthew's gospel, again, another insight into Matthew's gospel, he begins here, they shall call him Emmanuel, God with us. How does he finish the gospel? Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is with us as his people. And so Matthew is God's spokesman to us today, communicating God's message to us that Jesus is none other than God himself, but he's taken on humanity in order to really become our savior. It's emphatic. And as we look at this beginning part of Matthew's message, there, there, there are four parts I want to bring before you, or four applications. The first is, Matthew, what he's doing in the beginning, and I'm going to assume that we read chapter 1, verses 1 through 16, but I'm not going to read it to you, so you can read it on your own. But in the beginning of his gospel, in chapter 1, the very first thing that Matthew is doing is he's declaring the truth. You want to know the truth? about who Jesus is, here it is. Verses 1 to 17, he's the royal son of David. That's who he is. That's the whole reason the genealogy is there. Point two, he's the heavenly son of God. That's what we looked at today, verses 18 to 25. It's very clear what Matthew's doing. He is telling us the gospel truth. The gospel truth is that Jesus Christ is, is of the line of David. He is fully man, and he is really the heavenly son of God who has become man. He's the divine savior. But the second thing Matthew urges upon us is to accept the truth. He's not just simply putting it before us or declaring it as if he's finished his duty. It's to impress upon us that we should know him and that we should worship Jesus as our Savior. You know, basic Christianity, which is what we talked about today, is really simple. It's really simple. But, of course, it is amazingly complex at the same time in its depth. The, the realities and the mysteries will, will occupy our minds and our hearts in worship for eternity. To just ponder who Jesus is is fully God and fully man. It's filled with glorious doctrines like these. So if we strengthen our minds, it helps strengthen our faith. That's the purpose of it all, is to see the depth of Scripture. 
Matthew's trying to urge and convince us by, by taking us back to the prophets that yes, this is the gospel truth, but you should accept it and become more knowledgeable because it'll help you stand in awe of who God is and what he's done. The third thing he wants to impress upon us is it's to go even beyond that, not just that we know what the truth is and that we accept it, but that we experience it for ourselves. Not only should we know who he is, but to experience all the blessings that flow from knowing Jesus on a personal level. That's the greatest comfort. Jesus is with us. Our sins are forgiven. All the blessings in him are ours. All of eternity is before us, our hope. So we can live our lives in constant joy in our salvation, regardless of what's going on in the world or with our neighbors or families. We can worship in the joy of salvation. That's what this experience is about on a Sunday morning especially. It's not just about doing a religious duty. It's about coming to worship in joy because of salvation. And then we can serve him as well with joy. Not just because we have to get things done as a church or we have to do certain things to please the Lord in our lives, but we can be filled with an eternal, internal joy as we do this. And we can, become by part, part, we can become more and more a partaker of these blessings by our faith as we put our faith in Jesus. And finally, the fourth thing is that don't just keep it to ourselves, to proclaim it to the world. That's why Matthew wrote the gospel, because he wanted the world to know. Right? So here's the gospel truth, who Jesus is, what he did. Accept it as truth. Let it occupy your mind. Experience it in your life. Let it occupy your heart. And then go tell other people about it. Proclaim the truth. We're to proclaim it that all, to all people that Jesus came to save sinners. And there are people scattered all over the world awaiting to hear the gospel of salvation. This very gospel from Matthew. And that's what Advent season is all about, enjoying the Christmas story. It's re-enjoying the gospel truth of who Jesus Christ is. And uh, may God bless his word to our souls and our lives. And uh, today is the uh, first Sunday of the month. And so as is our practice here at Calvary Church, we want to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And so what a fitting way to conclude this message from Matthew's Gospel to participate in the Lord's Supper together. So let's do that now.